The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. For people who are unfamiliar, uh, this is a 90-minute program, so we ask people to stay all the way to the end. It's just uh, mostly a matter of respecting the discussion period. I know sometimes people need to get out right away, so I'm going to do my best to end uh, right at 9 o'clock. Sometimes you go over a few minutes, but uh, if, <clears throat> if you don't have to, not to leave during the discussion time, that would be better. So I've been giving some talks now that we moved on from renunciation on this topic of wisdom. And as I mentioned last week, wisdom is really the crown jewel in the Buddhist teaching, something he emphasized. And in a way, all of the other teachings, and there are many, are just different ways of reminding us that however much wisdom, perspective, or space we have in the mind, that's basically, as a as a spiritual being, as a human being, that's how how much uh, skill we have. So there's a connection between wisdom and functionality and skillfulness. It's not something theoretical, like we want to be wise, like because it's nice to be wise. But wisdom really means being functional, being useful, being happy. That's really what it's about. Another way of talking about it is wisdom, in a Buddhist sense, means that the mind, all aspects of the mind, and the body are in alignment with the way things are. And ignorance means that somehow there's an incongruency between the mind and the way things are. And if there's this incongruency, then the actions, the choices that we make, the way we view things, it's out of sync with the way things are. And so there are repercussions to that inconsistency or the incongruency. Sylvia Borstein, in the book that I mentioned last week, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, she has this nice quote, I know I'm not paying attention if I am not feeling kind. And what she means by paying attention, she means this wise attention. You know, because there are a lot of times we're paying attention, but we're paying attention with a lot of greed or a lot of aversion. That's not wise paying attention. That's being caught up in an unskillful view. But when we're paying attention in a skillful way, meaning that we're coming into alignment through the process of paying attention to the moment, then the mind is, in a sense, integrated. It's in sync. And one of the things we discover, the more we do the practice, we discover that you know, instead of trying to be kind and trying to be compassionate, if we just open more thoroughly to the moment, we'll notice a kind of tenderness or warmth or kindness. Not some imitation, but just it is the natural result of being intimate. I mean, that's what intimate means. Right? Intimate means being kind, tender, responsive. Just like being distant, being disconnected usually implies, you know, the opposite. So last week I, I, I tried to convey that um, that it's possible to change, right? It's possible to be ignorant. And if it's possible to be ignorant, it's also possible to be non-ignorant, you know? And where there are different stages or different levels, like we can be really ignorant, really disconnected, really unaware of what's going on. And we can be sort of aware, sort of connected, sort of present with the way things are. And we can be really sensitive, really attuned, really clear, non-reactive to the way things are. 
And we want to understand that whoever we are, however well-practiced we are, however long we've been practicing, that in any moment of our life, we're playing along this continuum from being really skillful or really aware, really present, mindful, and skillful, really unaware, disconnected, and unskillful. And it's not a fixed point. You know, so this is important to understand because it means that we have reasons to bring our whole sense of, uh, yeah, it's just like a sense of responsibility, I guess, to the present moment. I, I, I want to take responsibility for where I am in any moment. Am I over here at this end of the spectrum in the deeply ignorant end, you know, or do, is there some some degree of wisdom, perspective, space in the mind here and now that allows my response to be more nimble, more creative, more attuned to the way things are, the way it is. So it's, it's a bit of a heavy thing because then it means there's no vacation. We don't really get a vacation because every moment's a new moment. And just because we had been really attuned, in the next moment, we can be really disconnected. For example, in a moment of being really attuned, the mind's nimble, creative, uh, really functional. And then we notice that, and we get attached, you know, and we start to proliferate about being the guy who's really attuned. Well, then, of course, we're not really attuned. We've slid all the way over here, and we're about to make a fool out of ourselves. I mean, there's nothing worse I mean, it's okay being ignorant, but there's nothing worse than when we do something ignorant, thinking, you know, that we're really attuned and smart. It's so it's a kind of shocking, you know, how that is when we're feeling on top of the world, and then we do something really stupid, and then we realize it, and then it, it's disconcerting because then we could stop, start to mistrust ourselves. Well, I thought, I thought I was really present. I thought I knew what was going on. I thought I had sort of come into sync with things and then to sort of totally miss the boat and to say something that's really inappropriate or to not say something, not do something that needed to be done. And in the same way, we can be really ignorant, acting out of a lot of confusion, like we're walking blind and uh, creating problems for ourselves and others. And in in the next moment, we, in realizing that we're disconnected, out of tune, the heart can open with compassion. And we can, that compassion actually allows us to be really intimate. And there's a lot of freedom in understanding that we're confused and disconnected. And of course, if we really understand that, we're no longer disconnected. We're connected with the truth of being confused, being, un, excuse me, uncertain knowing that the heart's reactive. It's different than actually just being reactive. So, you know, one of the encouragements as we reflect on wisdom in the next few weeks when we're on this topic, so just keep bringing that to mind. It's surprisingly potent just to bring this to mind, that we're always playing along this continuum. Every moment we are responsible and it's, and it's moment by moment. So it's, we're never out of the woods. We're always responsible for noticing and doing the best we can. That's it. And if we <clears throat> make a mistake and we're over here in the ignorant end of the spectrum, <coughs> dwelling on that isn't skillful. What's skillful is to do the one thing that helps. And this is the second point I made last week, which It's so nice. It always comes down to one thing, wise attention. It's this combination of awareness and wisdom. Or another way it gets translated is clear comprehension. We want to clearly comprehend the present moment. And because the moment's always changing, we have to clearly comprehend then now the next moment and the next moment. So it's a process. Wisdom isn't a state, it's an ongoing process of clearly comprehending, clearly comprehending, clearly comprehending the moment. We can't rest in our laurels, like, okay, I'm clearly comprehending. 
already that's a deluded idea. Because when we have that thought, generally, we're not clearly comprehending that we're having that thought. Oh, having the thought that I'm clearly comprehending. I mean, if that's what's going on, then that's fine. But usually, we want to rest. I mean, as a conventional human being, we want to get to where we think we need to get to, like wisdom, so we can rest and stop having to be wise. Okay, I'm there. I'm in Nibbana, fully enlightened, and now I can rest. But it's sort of, it's missing the point that the practice is really demanding an ongoing vigilance because the habit energy will always take over of resting. And generally, when we're resting, it means we're resting in ignorance. It's hard to rest in wisdom. It's possible, but it's it's hard because it's not our habit. Now, at some point, it will be our habit, or at least in some moments, it will be our habit just to rest in wisdom. But because dulling out or fixating is more of our habit, we need to, in the beginning of practice, develop this kind of vigilance of clearly comprehending, clearly comprehending, and seeing that as our first and foremost responsibility. And so what do we see when we clearly comprehend a moment, any moment? What do we notice? Like, for example, we can practice right now. I mean, even if you don't know what I'm talking about, you do understand the word clearly and comprehending. So let's just apply those words to this experience. Clearly comprehending how it is now. I mean, what, do we, what can we clearly comprehend? Well, we can clearly comprehend the body sitting or standing or whatever you're doing. We can clearly comprehend the sensations as sensations, sounds as sounds, sights as sights. Not getting confused. Like, so if there's a thought when we see somebody, well, that's a thought that's different than the seeing. Seeing is one thing. Thinking about the person I'm seeing is another thing. Having an emotional reaction to the thoughts is a third thing. So clearly comprehending is not getting confused. Because we could see somebody and have an aversive reaction and think that that person is that aversive reaction. But they're two different things. Seeing the person is one thing. The thought, there's this guy over here, is another thing. And the aversive reaction is a third thing. It's really helpful to break it down like that. For one, the experience is much less seductive or deluding if we understand the components that make it up. You know, this is how prejudice arises, right? <clears throat> we see a woman or we see a man, and because our mind likes to simplify things, we see that this person is of this gender, and as I'm perceiving that this person is of this gender, I'm also remembering all of my experiences with that gender. All of my perceived experiences. I may not even be real experiences. You know, what I've read about that gender or that race of people or that people who live on in that neighborhood or people who drive those kinds of cars or people who live in that country. And then we kind of, as a sort of convenience, sort of put it all together. Oh, then that person is, because it just makes it, makes it easier to organize the world. But that sort of simplification has all kinds of consequences. Now, it doesn't mean we don't want to use the information from the past. It just means we want to know that we're using it so that we're not confused by it, confused by what we do when we make generalizations. Like we can separate the generalization from the actual experience. We know, okay, this is the sum total of my experience from the past. And it, it comes with this sort of charge that feels like this. And that's the sum total of my experience from the past. And it may be true now or not. So I'm informed. Now let's see. And that's really how, because, you know, a lot of people, um, Sometimes in superficial ways, when you do the, when you get your training at work or about uh, diversity training, things like that, you know, and it says sometimes the implication will be that we can go beyond, we can sort of 
do away with our conditioning. But if we grew up and a certain imprint was made through the conversations we had and heard, well, you can't just make that go away. But what we can do is we can become aware of it. We can become aware of the influence of our conditioning as it's arising in the present moment. It's really useful. But we don't want to confuse it with the present moment or what we're seeing, for example. I mean, it is arising in the present moment, but it's arising as an emotion or a thought. And then there's the seeing, and then there's the interaction that's happening now. So the first thing we want to remember is that how we relate, the view that we have, it matters. How we're understanding, it matters. We can be ignorant, or we can be wise. We can be disconnected, unaware, or we can be clearly comprehending. So in this way, in the way that we talk, at least at this center, and generally in this tradition of practice, Buddhist practice, mindfulness, generally speaking, when we use the word mindfulness, we really mean mindfulness and wisdom operating together, like clear comprehension or wise attention. So mindfulness is short for wisdom and mindfulness coming together. Technically, they're two things. Mindfulness is sort of the not forgetting the present moment. And wisdom is not being confused by what we're seeing or what we're experiencing. Seeing it, not, not sort of oversimplifying or generalizing the experience, but just seeing it in terms of its raw input. You know, so we're seeing red, we're seeing shape, we're seeing form, we're hearing this sound, we're having this thought, we're feeling this emotion. And we're not just out of habit putting it all together and calling it yuck or calling it yeah, which that oversimplification causes problems. But we're keeping it all the way. We're, we're aware of the yeah, but it's just something being known. We're not falling into the conclusion, but understanding that, oh, there's a pleasant affect or pleasant feeling here in the present moment, or there's this unpleasant yuck in the present moment. But we're not letting it define everything. It's just another thing that's being known. And it really helps. So uh, the amount of wisdom or the quality of our understanding matters. It's nimble. It can change. It's our responsibility to change. The catalyst for the change is the degree of clear comprehension or wise attention or mindfulness. And then the third thing that we want to remember in this whole ongoing reflection on wisdom is the taste of wisdom. Like I said at the beginning, wisdom is functional. It has a purpose. The purpose of wisdom is to be free, to be free of suffering, to be free of affliction. Like the Buddha said, I teach only one thing, suffering and its end. So the whole point of understanding that our particular understanding in the moment matters and that the catalyst for changing it all revolves around wise attention clear comprehension is because when we're over here, the heart is relatively liberated and free and buoyant and nimble and functional, skillful. And when the heart is over here, it's heavy. We feel burdened. Life is unworkable. We hate it. We want out. We want to fix it. We want to get rid of that that we see in the way, that we think is in the way of our happiness. We can justify destruction because we externalize our problems. When our heart feels weighed down, we're also confused by that weight. The weight is confusing. When we're suffering, the suffering confuses our mind. It isn't easy to clearly comprehend what's going on. And the general manifestation of that confusion is we externalize the problem. We blame something outside, like our past. Even our past is externalized. Like, God, if I didn't have this past, I'd be more skillful. You know, if my parents had raised me in a different way, if they had been more skillful, I'd be more skillful. I wouldn't have this problem. Or if my boss weren't this way, or my teacher, or my parent, or my spouse. That blaming, externally blaming our suffering on others or on external conditions arises when we're deluded. And one of the things, one of the manifestations of wisdom is whenever we start suffering, we immediately know there's something we can do about it. 
like I mentioned last week, when we're suffering, the thought should arise, I'm responsible. Or the responsibility for the suffering is happening right here. If I'm suffering, the heart, mind, body is doing something right here, right now, that is the cause for the suffering. And so freedom from the suffering is right here, right now. I don't have to fix my life or fix the world in order to be free from suffering. I just have to discern the contracting right now, the heaviness right now. There's something creating the experience of heaviness, of contraction, of entanglement right now. So it's a matter of letting go of something that's not needed, that's extra. So that's the third thing to remember in in this ongoing reflection about wisdom, the taste of freedom, the heart that's released. Or as the Buddha said in the Heartwood Sutta, this famous talk he gave, the simile of the Heartwood, where he said that the fruit of practice is the unshakable release of the heart, the heart that doesn't have any ground, any weight. It's just like open, loving space to be in the world, but not burdened by the world, no matter the conditions. This is the, this is the aspiration. This is something not to kind of boo-hoo, but to actually bring into our very ordinary lives with all of our suffering that we have and all the confusion that we have. But we want to hold out this possibility that, that this life, the conditions that we have, the life situation that we have, this life situation doesn't imply suffering. Not that we have to like believe in that, but we want to hold that as a possibility. Because otherwise we won't look. We'll just assume, well, with this life situation, you know, we rationalize our suffering. We just assume, well, I should be suffering because things aren't the way I want them to be. So, of course, I'm suffering. And it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling thing. It's a to- it, it creates a total totally different relationship to the moment if we say, perhaps this suffering is optional. Perhaps this reaction I'm having is optional. Perhaps this weight, this this heaviness in the heart is optional. This hatred is optional. This fear is optional. This anxiety is optional. Perhaps there's a different way of relating that would lead to a different quality in the heart, in the mind. Some of you know that uh, Buddha has this particular teaching on the eight winds, the eight worldly winds from pain, or pain to pleasure, gain to loss, fame to disrepute, praise and blame, that there's this natural movement towards good and bad, or pleasant and unpleasant in life. That's just the easy way to remember it. So the question is, is there a way to be free in a world where, you know, each of us, given our own particular life situation, we're going to have our own particular share of pleasant and unpleasant experience. Now, we could spend our whole life lamenting the fact that we see people who seem to have less of the share that we have of unpleasantness and more pleasantness. But the question, the actual um, practical question is, is there, way, is there a way to be more free, more happy, peaceful, with the particular share of pleasant and unpleasantness that we're experiencing now? What is that way of being free or being more and more liberated, buoyant, and happy with the particular life situation, with its particular balance of unpleasant or pleasant sensations or experience? Right? Isn't, doesn't that seem like the relevant question? How best to relate to this situation? Because we could spend our whole life trying to make it more pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant. But it's a, it's a never-ending battle because we're not in control of the pleasant and unpleasant experience in our life, no matter how confident we are.
So here's a paragraph from Ajahn Tanisaro I thought I'd share. It's a little dense, but I find that it covers a lot uh, in terms of this theme on wisdom. It's from his book, Wings to Awakening. It's a great book. Like I said, it's a little dense. And you can download it online or you can write his monastery. But if you Google Wings to Awakening, you'll find very quickly his book by Ajahn Tanisaro. Ajahn is just a a word that means like venerable, used for senior teachers in the Thai Buddhist tradition. And in this chapter on right view or discernment, wisdom, he says, the function of right view, or you could substitute wisdom here, the function of wisdom is to look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion, leading the mind to a state of non-fashioning and then on to awakening. So to look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion. So normally the events in the mind, the activity mind, we're not dispassionate, we get identified. We're very identified with our thoughts and emotions. So we want to give rise to a sense of dispassion, relate in a way that leads to dispassion. So we're not going to be fashioning. We're not going to be constructing or proliferating. Because if we're relating to our heart mind, to the activity of the heart and mind with dispassion, we're not going to add anything to it. It's just going to be what it is, or it's just a thought. It's just an emotion. It does this by focusing on the way in which passion and desire lead to suffering and stress. So the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you relate to the mind or look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion? You focus on passion. We look at how the mind gets attached, gets identified with its thoughts, its emotions, and how that inevitably leads to the heart being burdened, entangled, heavy, contracted, constricted, over and over again. I mean, this is the great value of sitting meditation. We're sitting there, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, and then something like, oh yeah, i got to do this tomorrow comes up. right? So when that thought arises in the mind, we don't just say, oh, that's just a thought. That's me. I have tomorrow, and I have to do this tomorrow. We're immediately lost in the story, right? Now, if we have a chance, then maybe not initially, but then maybe in the second moment to notice, oh, that's just a thought. And then we notice the heart. Oh, I'm entangled. I mean, the heart feels burdened because we have this idea that there is a tomorrow in which I have to do something that I don't want to do. Right? And then there's this contraction, this sort of energetic contraction in the heart. So we start to see the connection. Oh, a thought with attachment, with passion. That's what passion means. It's like excitement because it belongs to me. It has a charge because if it's a, because of the identification and how that always comes with weight or suffering. We have to see that tens of thousands of times. This is really our job, to make that connection between attachment and suffering, attachment and suffering. Not conceptually suffering, but the actual experience of suffering, feeling burdened, the heart, mind feeling contracted or constricted including the body, of course, because when the mind gets tight, well, then the body tends to reflect that tightness, of course. And the mind can loosen up you know, and drop it, but the body doesn't work so fast. So by the end of the day, even if we've let go of all of our problems, the body's still in a knot because of all of the contractions throughout the day. And then the worst thing is, when the body's contracted and the mind notices that, it thinks something's wrong, even when nothing's wrong, because it's as if the body's communicating something. Like, Mark, I think something's wrong because I'm all tight. Well, we're all tight because of all the attached thoughts we have during the day. So you see how it just inevitably leads. Then we look for something to get contracted about. We kind of scan through the mind. Well, I guess I could worry about tomorrow, because then that thought would fit the contraction in the body. So we go back to our thoughts, so that our thoughts fit the experience in the body. But then thinking that thought reinforces the charge in the body. 
which, of course, makes the mind want to have thoughts that fit the charge of the body, and then on and on and on. And this is our tight life. And then when we're tight, we're less clear. Like I said earlier, we get diluted by the pain that we experience, and we see less clearly, and it just keeps us from correcting what's off. So... The way we do this is through clear comprehension or paying attention in a wise way. By And this is Ajahn Tanisro's instruction. The mind does this by focusing on the way in which passion and desire lead to suffering and stress. In this, it develops the mind's basic reaction to stress. So how should we react to stress? This He's going to tell us. The search for a way to escape from stress in a skillful way so that this reaction actually leads to utter release. Now, normally, when we notice we're contracted, constricted, burdened, how do we normally react? Well, it feels yucky, right? So we want to escape. So we we go looking for something pleasant, right? Like, I'm going to go read the paper. I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to go read the paper because I don't like this feeling. Or I'm going to call somebody up. Or I'm, We look for some distraction to avoid the feeling. Now, instead of running from our feeling, when we do get contracted, which inevitably we will, instead of running from it, Ajahn Tanisaro is saying, search for an escape from the stress, right, in a skillful way so that the reaction actually leads to utter release. So we're using the experience of being stressed, anxious, worried, wanting, fearful, We use that reaction, that weight, to see what leads to a release, what actually allows for the uh, disentangling of that. What can we do? I mean, basic trial and error. So we just keep relating to it until we find a way of relating that actually is the cause for its disentangling, for it coming apart, dropping away. And you see, then when we start to get that, we realize how ineffective running from stress is. Because it's stressful to need to run from stress. And we never learn anything about stress. Because we just assume it's bad, I should run. I should deny. I should hide. So we never gain skill. Which means when we're 80, you know, and something unpleasant happens, we're not much more skillful than we were when we were 13 because we basically have missed the purpose of life, which is to get skillful in this very particular way. We want to get more skillful on how to relate to stress, to suffering. So we want to relate to stress until we find a way that leads to, as Ajahn Tanisro says, its utter release the unshakable release, at least of that moment of stress, that strand of suffering, until it's there no more and we experience a moment of liberation. I was worried, I was identified, I felt burdened, and it's gone. Now, there's no burden in the heart. And to really know that ending, that freedom, so we understand that it's possible. This builds the confidence. What confidence and what confidence that we don't have to run from stress, but we can deal with it directly by through the process of bringing wisdom, discernment, discerning the stress until we see its end, relating to it, opening to it, trusting that there is an end. We don't have to run from it. We only run from it when we feel it's dangerous. But with wisdom, we understand that the cause for the stress is right here. It's just a matter of discerning what needs to be let go of. And so he's going to explain this. This is where it gets a little dense. When the mind sees without its normal bewilderment, right? Because running from stress is bewildering because we're feeling contracted and then we're running. And it's hard to understand what's going on when we're feeling contracted or stressed and then running from it at the same time. When the mind sees without its normal bewilderment the actual process by which stress is caused, it will naturally let go of the causes. When it sees passion clearly enough to catch that passion, 
to catch that passion in the act of leading to stress, it will naturally develop a sense of dispassion for and detachment from the passion so that it can view it simply as a mental event with no meaning in terms of anything else. This opens the way to the state of non-fashioning where the cause of stress is allowed to cease. I'll say that again. I'll read that again. When the mind sees without its normal bewilderment the actual process by which stress is caused, it will naturally let go of the causes. Nobody intentionally causes stress. Nobody, that would be insane. We do it because we're not seeing what's happening. When it sees passion clearly enough to catch that passion in the act of leading to stress, you could substitute the word attachment there. When it sees attaching or attachment clearly enough to catch that attachment or that attaching in the act of leading to stress. So we see that wanting or identification or attaching leads directly to stress. It will naturally develop a sense, the mind will naturally develop a sense of dispassion for and detachment from the passion. Don't go there. Right? The mind naturally, don't go there. Don't get attached. It hurts. It's like holding a hot pan. You just don't do that. We don't even need to say don't do that. We just let go. It's the same thing. Now, normally, it feels appropriate to get attached to what we like, to get averse to what we don't like. But it's because we're only seeing it superficially. When we really see attachment for what it is, passion for what it is, we don't do it. But we have to really see it. So instead of immediately going to the most, the things you're most passionate about, start with things you're just slightly passionate about, slightly averse to, and really start getting that, like, you know, you're sitting and you're feeling not intense pain in your knee, but just some discomfort in your knee. And you just notice that uh, the identification with the pain leads to, like, it's almost like you're walling it off with tension, like, as if it's totally insane that when we're not conscious, we feel like it makes sense to tighten up around the contraction. I mean, there's a contraction of pain, and then in an ignorant way we think, well, I'll just contract around it as if to protect myself from the pain. It's totally insane when you see it. But we don't see it in an ignorant way. It makes sense to sort of tighten up around pain. Or we do the same thing with pleasant. We have a pleasant thought about our next vacation. And what do we do when that thought comes up? Oh, right? We tense up. We do it mentally, and then it gets reflected in the body. Well, it's totally insane to get tight about a thought about the future. What value does that have to get tight about some pleasant thought or pleasant experience? Like you're with a friend, and you get tight because you're so happy. Why would we do that? It's because we've got a bad habit. And we have to see that bad habit moment by moment. We have to see how it comes to be, see that it is insane. It's totally unnecessary and unproductive. And thankfully, it can be abandoned because it's happening right here in the body-mind. It's totally available for abandoning if we see it. But as long as we're ignorant, as long as we haven't paid attention in this deep way, of course, we just keep doing it because it's the habit of the mind and body to do that. So the key with wisdom is confidence. We have to have confidence that there's another way. Otherwise, why will we look? Why will we start to pay attention, bring mindfulness to the present moment? We have to at least begin with some faith. It could be blind faith. You're doing it because I'm telling you or the Buddha told, tells us that paying attention in this way really matters, has positive effects. Let me just finish reading this and then I'll open it up for discussion. Oh, I guess I did finish reading it. <laughs> so I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. My new mission to end right at 9 o'clock. So, Mona, what comes to mind?
habits, you know, there were two big habits that I dropped at age 40. That was drinking and smoking. They were big. Um, but I can see, you know, wisdom has kind of brought me to a place where I understand that it wasn't, it isn't really the alcohol or the cigarettes. There's this underlying energy that, you know, that I think we probably all have to one degree or another, but um, it's the energy behind these habits. Yeah. And so now, you know, it's carrot cake and sweets and... Yeah, yeah. Give that give that energy a name. What would you call that energy? Addictive in nature. Mm-hmm. What's it? What does it feel like? Well, it's just as you described it. It's a it's a way to you know as the stress winds up during the day, it's a way to uh, escape from that in a not skillful way. Yeah. You know it's. You know, after work, like when I was 30, 40, I had fears that would mm-hmm. take the, numb me out from the stress because I still haven't learned a skillful way to release the stress that just comes up. But the key is that we have to invite ourselves into the stress. So it's like uh, Jack Hornfield calls that background like the body of fear, I think is what he calls it. And other people have other names. Eckhart Tolle has a, a nice name for it. I'm forgetting it right now. Pain body. Yeah. So, and it's not so much what we feel on the surface, but when the mind gets a little quiet. See, on the surface, we're too busy running from the pain body or the body of fear uh, to notice it in a, in a clearer way. But when we start practicing or when we just start paying attention, whether we're formally doing Buddhist mindfulness practice or not, doesn't matter. But if we have some basic interest in paying attention to life, we'll start to notice it. And, and of course, as soon as we notice it, the noticing it is going to trigger all of our addictive behaviors, just like you suggested. Alcohol and cigarettes, sweets, chatting, talking, TV, all kinds of media, all kinds of busyness. You know, working is, is, is one too. Just keep working, doing too much. And this is where you know we can remind ourselves that uh, running from this doesn't help. But we don't want to judge ourselves when we do run in our various ways, you know, each of us in our various ways. We don't want to judge ourselves. We just want to appreciate that this heart doesn't yet know how to, doesn't have enough faith and enough skill to turn toward this body of pain or uh, pain body or body of fear. This background pain doesn't have enough confidence. Doesn't have enough skill. But we can just tag onto that. But someday, I will. You know, I'm in the process of developing. So yes, right now I'm running. I'm gonna go have my dessert. I'm gonna turn on the TV. But I'm gonna. But I know it's just a temporary diversion, and that at best it's limited. So. When we do go have that piece of cake or go watch that, that TV show, it's important to notice the pleasantness of it and not to be judging ourselves or hating ourselves for doing that kind of temporary pleasant activity. Let the pleasantness of it become really skillful at choosing pleasant diversions, wholesome <coughs> pleasant diversions, diversions that are actually pleasant. Drinking actually doesn't turn out to be very pleasant because it has all kinds of consequences. You know, so one part of our path is actually getting more pleasant, more skillful diversions because we are still in a place where we need some because the pain is intense and we don't have as much confidence as we need or as much skill. At some moments, we have plenty of confidence and skill. So we don't want to always have the impulse to run. But we, uh, we know that, you know, it's like in military terms, you know, you can lose a battle and still win the war. Well, just because we're going to 
you know, go hang out with our friends tonight instead of sitting with our body of fear <laughs> or pain body all night, you know, doesn't mean we're a failure because we're hanging out with our friends. It means that we're rejuvenating, we're appreciating the joy, and we know that that body of fear, that pain body, is still there. It's there until I understand it completely. And it's waiting. So we use the pleasant experiences as like a, a spiritual vacation. We're getting rejuvenated. We're touching joy. And then we're choosing these activities by how much joy, how much wholesome joy we can get from them. Because we understand the need for joy in order to do this long-term work of turning toward the life that's being lived, you know, in, with fewer distractions, of course. I mean, eventually we want to practice in the middle of every moment, but we appreciate in the beginning that the quieter times make it easier. Thanks, Mona. Other thoughts that people have? Yeah, Dave and then Maria. Um, yeah, I was going to really relate to what you were talking about with the physical pain and uh, how that, you know, the mind really relates to that because as I was running, I ran the marathon over the weekend and I noticed how from, you know, the last few miles of the race from 22 to the end, it was like the mind was so, like, this is unbearable, I can't take it anymore. I need Because you're gonna, do you feel like you're just gonna spin with it? Well, because that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. Spinning um, with it has been an experience, or spinning with it, going. Actually, I started to work my way out of it because what my big fear is that I'll become suicidal. Uh huh. So I think, okay, just because you think about it doesn't mean you have to do it. And then I started to feel better. Mm -hmm. um, and that's as far as I got before you called on me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, sometimes we have to actually call the bluff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but sometimes you have to call the bluff. I mean, you have to assess whether it's it's appropriate to call the bluff. But like the kind of body of fear or that pain body, it looks big and vicious. I mean, the, to every one of us, each of us in our own particular way, it looks real. That's why we call it, you know, the pain body or the fear body. And we have to, you know, in some of us are more kind of um, take me, you know, and, and other people are more gradual, but each of us in our own way, we have to challenge the prominency or the, you know, the power of that force in the mind. We have to look at it. And you can do it little steps, you know, like touch it and then get up and move and do something and then touch it and then get up and do something so you don't have to like 
be there forever. You know, I'm caught in this retreat, this day-long retreat, you know, where I have nowhere to run. You know, you can give your mind a nut. Well, just, honey, we'll sit down on the couch and we'll just feel what we're feeling for a while. And then if you feel like leaving, that's okay too. So that it's uh, like, that's something I used to have to tell myself a lot of my practice, that something like, I'm not going to make myself do something I don't want to do. And it, that's been really useful in my meditation practice. That I, I told myself right from the beginning, I'm not going to make myself do something that I don't want to do because I think I should. That, like, basically I'm saying, I have to bring everybody along, including my ignorant self. I've got to convince my ignorant self, too, that it wants to do this. I have to find a real reason to be doing what I'm doing. So I've always led. Now, not everybody is this way. And I think there are other ways to do it. But I've always led with reason. It's like, it's got to make sense to to the whole system. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So you could try that. I mean, like, finding the logical reason to kind of keep looking at it, turning toward it. Yeah, Nick. <coughs> and then this will have to be the last comment. This article that you quoted, Mark, he's saying, through your interpretation, he's saying that when you're contracting, when you're, you're witnessing the distress, a little bit more than that, but kind of that. So, like eating or drinking or sex or gambling like that would be running from it, and then it would never change. Right, you're seeing the attachment, and you're you're specifically, more importantly, seeing how attachment always leads to contraction or suffering. So it's that. That seeing that, that that changes things. You have to see that when the mind gets identified with anything, pain comes with it. You can't get identified without suffering, without being stressed. If you see, if the mind sees that clearly, it lets go of the attachment, of the passion. So it doesn't help the external changes. Not necessarily, no. Yeah. And this is the radical notion that suffering arises because of something the heart-mind is doing, not about the particular circumstances of our lives. So the promise then is that happiness is available now, no matter the particular conditions of our lives, which is pretty provocative. And people get angry when you say things like that. I don't try to say that very often because it's provocative. You know, and people say, well, yeah, well, if you lost your husband or if, you, you know, and I, it's true, I don't know because that hasn't happened to me and I don't know what I would do in that situation. But in the situations I've experienced, I've come to have a lot of confidence that this is actually the way it is, that happiness is, in fact, available. But does it mean that we can manifest that happiness because we have a lot of habit energy, a lot of conditioning telling us happiness isn't available. And you know, we want to be consistent with our habit energy. And that really destines us to a lot of suffering because our habit energy is saying, if this happens, you should suffer. And let's let it go here. So we'll just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.